Welcome to episode 812 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by not Sam Miller today, but a replacement BP editor-in-chief, former BP (laughs) editor-in-chief, Stephen Goldman. Hello, Steve. Hi, it's great to be back. Steve is in my living room, filling in for Sam, whose internet connection wasn't great today. And it's fortuitous timing because we're doing a baseball history show. The present day-to-day baseball stories are pretty slow right now. And Sam and I are about a week away from getting into the future and doing team preview episodes. So today we're going to do a, a brief diversion into the past. And we'll be talking to Darius Austin, who is a writer for Banished to the Pen. Hey, Darius. Hello. And Darius is joining us from Northern England. And I will describe the circuitous path that we took to this podcast. Darius emailed me and Sam last month, and Sam and I answered his email in an email show, and he told us that he had noticed that Warren Spahn had never started against the Dodgers for three years in the 1950s because of the Dodgers' powerful right-handed lineup and the short fence in left at Ebbets Field, and he had checked Warren Spahn's game log to confirm this, and It was true that between 1954 and 1957, Spahn had pitched only a few innings against the Dodgers, and he wondered how this had been possible and whether it was possible for teams to do something similar now, whether teams could start certain guys or or sit certain guys against certain lineups, depending on matchups. And Sam and I talked about it a bit and kind of concluded that it doesn't work as well today as as it did in the 1950s, but maybe that's just a a failure of imagination. So Darius did some additional research on Banished to the Pen, which is the excellent website started by listeners to this podcast. And he dug into this more deeply and wrote it up. And I will link to his article in the podcast post at BP and also in the Facebook group. But we're going to talk to him about it now. And Steve is a baseball history buff, used to write about baseball history for BP and now writes about it for Vice Sports. So he will be helpful here also. So Darius, what did you find about the league as a whole's approach against the Dodgers during the 1950s? Yeah, well, it really seemed like this was just the accepted strategy. So one of the first things that I found when I, I went looking for more info on this was a, a Joe Posnanski piece about it um, in which he'd you know, had a similar moment a couple of years ago where he kind of thought, well, this can't be true. Um, you know, Warren Spahn is one of the, the greatest pitchers of all time, and and how can he not start against one team at all? Mm-hmm. But he'd sort of, you know, done the same thing as me, checked the game logs, and, and found that it was true. And so he asked uh, Bill James about it, and apparently Bill said that this was sort of normal, that that was, you know, uh, thinking about team matchups was um, was basically what managers did then. So it was just kind of an, an accepted strategy in general to maybe uh, skip your left-hander against a team that you thought uh, had, had a lot of right-handed power. 
like the Dodgers did. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anything, um, the Braves had taken a bit longer than, than most teams to do this. So um, I sort of I went through it and looked at the actual total numbers of, of starts in the whole decade. And, and in 1950, they had about 50. They had 56 against uh, left-handed starters, which is about normal for a 154-game season at the time. And that was about average. And by 1957, that had gone down to six. So they had 148 starts against right-handed pitchers and six against left-handed, which seems seems pretty crazy. But yeah, that that was just how they treated the Dodgers back then. The, the lineup was almost exclusively right-handed, and uh, it seems like that was just what managers thought you know that the Dodgers are in town or we're going to Ebbetsfield we're just not going to start our left-handers uh, and that was the league league's accepted strategy yeah so Steve you know a lot about these teams you you're very well read and well written <laughs> and I mean how how widely known was this or how strong was this perception at the time oh I think in general it was pretty strong the idea of a starting rotation the way that we think of it where you don't really have to check the well i'm going to reveal my age or the newspaper or the internet to get the the starting lineup uh or the starting uh, pitchers for the day is kind of a new thing and you know when you look back at the history of baseball prior to the 1960s you constantly see pitchers remembering well i came into the clubhouse that day and i found a ball under my cap and that meant i was starting that day and today it, it seems weird you think well, didn't he know it, it, he had pitched four days ago or he had pitched three days ago? So clearly it's Tuesday. It's it's his day. But it wasn't because managers were very aware of matchups, of uh, picking guys who worked for a particular park or a particular lineup. Uh, a, a really famous example of that uh, is, uh, other than Spahn, is Casey Stengel, who moved Whitey Ford around uh, another left-hander, not just to... Uh, get him away from right-handed lineups, but also to maximize uh, the matchups against other teams and to to actually save him for the best matchup so that he was facing the other guy's number one starter or he was facing the better team. So uh, amazing is his career winning percentages. It would be even better if he got a few more starts against, say, the St. Louis Browns, but that was something that that teams were really aware of. And if you look at, say, the Yankees starting rotation from those days, sometimes it's hard to figure out what it was because you have a lot of guys who have 15 starts, uh, 20 starts, and some of that is contingent based on injury, but a lot of it is just, hey, they, they felt like starting that guy for a couple of weeks and then they didn't. So Darius, you looked into how the Dodgers got this reputation, what they did to make people you know, not use the maybe third best left-handed starter of all time in games against them. So what was it that they did against Spahn specifically, but also just against the league in general to strike fear into the hearts of opposing managers? Okay, so uh, yeah, one of the reasons I think that uh, Spahn in particular sort of uh, started to get skipped was because uh, the Braves manager, Charlie Grimm, kept seeing him lose. Uh, I think he went 0-7 over 1952 and, and 1953. Uh, and there was already sort of this this narrative that the Dodgers were a bit of a, a lefty-crushing team. And I think that wider narrative was fueled particularly with, um, by Roy Campanella, who had a couple of incredible seasons against lefties, uh, over 1,000 OPS, I, I think, um, in 1958, 1951. Gil Hodges also hit lefties really well. Uh, he had over 1,000 OPS just for the, for the whole decade, uh, as did Campanella. And uh, Jackie Robinson didn't really have that extreme splits. He was slightly better hitter against lefties. But even so, he still also had a, a over 900 OPS against them. So really sort of all these players were kind of in their prime at the same time. And, and they were genuinely uh, a very good team against left-handers. And it was much more pronounced. I think the left, the Red Sox were, were the best team against lefties in, in 1950. 
but they were they were good against both sides, whereas the, the Dodgers were clearly better against left-handers. So I think that sort of started the trend, and, and they just kind of got better and better uh, right up through 1955. Uh, and obviously, that the following couple of years, they had a particularly low number of starts against as left-handers, as we said before. Mm-hmm. Darius, I'm really curious about whether when you look at the records and the statistics, you can see an impact on the pennant races of particularly the late 1950s, because one of the knocks on that Braves team and on Charlie Grimm and on Fred Haney is that as stacked as they were with talent, not just Spawn, but Hank Aaron and Lou Burdett and, uh, and Eddie Matthews, they didn't win quite as much as you might think they would win on paper. And they had five second place finishes between 1955 and, and 60 with just the, the and, and it seems weird to say just the two pennants, but just the two pennants in 57 and 58. And not all those races were incredibly close, but uh, in 56, they finished one game out. In 59, they finished uh, two games out to what was by then the, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I, I'm just curious if you can see or project how they might have done in the games that Spawn didn't start. And if, you know, you just didn't overrate the platoon statistics and assumed, hey, this is one of the all-time great pitchers. He probably will do okay regardless of the lineup. How do you think they might have done? Yeah, it was kind of hard at first, as you were saying before, about the difference in, in how um, pitches were managed. At uh, first, when I started looking at the game logs, it was quite difficult to see where Spahn had actually been skipped because there's so little consistency in the number of days rest. You know, sometimes he would go on two, other times he'd go on five, and it was all over the place. Um, but sort of, I managed to pick things out, particularly after the All-Star break, it was quite clear. There were a couple of seasons where they came out and they could have pitched him against the Dodgers and they didn't. Uh, and often he got seven or eight days rest. The one that really sticks out was uh, Grimm started a pitcher called Dave Jolly against the Dodgers. I think it was in 55. And this was the only start of his major league career. Huh. Uh, and they, they preferred him to, yeah, maybe the third greatest left, left-handed pitcher of all time which I don't know is like, uh, I can't think of a, an awful picture right now off the top of my head, but you know, if the Dodgers were to pick somebody off the waiver wire and start them instead of Kershaw in the playoffs, it kind of seems like <laughs> that kind of th- thing. So that was what one decision in particular that you sort of thought, well, it's not as though you've got another high quality option here. They went seven and 15 against the Dodgers that year. So it's not like it was working. Yeah. That, and that was one of the, the amazing things, you know, they were, this was the team that they were basically competing with for the pennant uh, and they had the best pitcher, you know, best lefty certainly and maybe the best pitcher uh, of the decade on their team and, and they just didn't use him against their number one rival so even as you say it was uh, only a, a game or two a margin uh, sometimes uh, for for the title so I definitely think it, it made a difference and obviously they weren't so aware of the actual numbers of the split but uh, it became such a, a narrative and I think Grimm got you know burned a couple of times by Spahn maybe not having the kind of starts you would expect from him and that that was it really he sort of let that influence his decisions I don't know exactly why he got fired I know it came uh, not long after one of Spahn's rare starts against the Dodgers so I'm not sure whether his uh, rotation management was part of that but um, yeah they certainly seem like they they left uh, at least a couple of wins uh, out there j- just by starting far inferior pitches over Spahn. That's interesting because it, it's not like the Dodgers reputation was wrong or exaggerated they really were amazing against left-handed pitchers they were according to the numbers in your article, maybe the the best of all time in some of those years are, are very close to it. And yet, when you are factoring in the downgrade from Spawn to almost anyone else, maybe the math still doesn't work out. And I'm kind of curious, Steve, whether you know 
how well understood platoon splits were at that point in baseball history or or even prior to that. I mean, it's something that baseball people have always been aware of. It's not like they needed to wait for baseball perspectives to come along and (laughs) figure out that there was a platoon split, but maybe they didn't know exactly how pronounced it was or or at what point it made sense to sit Warren Spahn and at what point it didn't. Do you know if it was just sort of a, a gut feel thing? Had anyone made any attempt to quantify this? Well, you know, the, the as Darius points out in his article, you know the Dodgers were tracking it through Alan Roth, but right. platooning had, had been known going all the way back to the beginning of the game. And, you know, uh, to, to invoke Casey again, people always talk about Casey as the guy who invented platooning, but he didn't. He just brought it back. And there was a, a resistance to it, um, in part because players really dislike it then and now. They say, and again, this is alluded to indirectly by Duke Snyder in, in, in Darius's piece, how can, how, can, how can I learn to hit a left-hander if I never see one? So they, they object to, to the benching, but more than that, just in the same way that a pitcher completing a game was a manhood issue, it wasn't about whether he was fatigued or uh, you know, there, there was a, a Raldis Chapman throwing 200 miles an hour in the pen or Dick Raditz in that day or somebody like that. It was, it was more about, you know, do you have the guts? Do you have the fortitude to, uh, to go through the lineup for the, uh, the third time or the fourth time and throw your 185th pitch in the game? Well, in that same sense, guys objected to being platooned. And one general manager in the 1930s talking about the idea of platooning guys said, well, it's just a psychological fad. I'm, I'm not even sure what that means, really. But uh, and he was actually the father of John Quinn, the guy who designed the Braves team that that we're talking about, who built it through their farm system during during the uh, their their down years, going back to uh, the 1940s. So it was understood, but I don't think it was understood thoroughly. It wasn't understood well, and and you know we've seen an evolution from guys like Stengel knowing it intuitively just through observing a lot of, of baseball players and almost scouting the an impression of the statistics in your head to Alan Roth with the Dodgers to Earl Weaver with his his uh, his note cards to to guys doing it with computers to today so it was much easier to disregard it at that time I think mm-hmm. and how much of the effect do you think was Ebbetsfield related because as Darius showed in his article this ownership of left-handed pitchers seemed to peter out just as the Dodgers moved cross country and obviously a lot of the players made that move with them so do you think this was largely ballpark driven well, I wanted to ask Darius about that because there's a, a, a kind of inconsistency there, which is, yeah, uh, Ebbetsfield played really small. And, you know, uh, Mickey Mantle, who who seemed to play in the World Series there every year, said, you know, he was asked how many career home runs he would have hit there if he played there every day. And he said a thousand. And, you know, there's a, a, a lot of hyperbole in, in everything that Mickey Mantle ever said, but that's almost believable given his raw strength and how small the ballpark played. I, I, what would have been neat that is there's kind of an alternative universe, and this happened with a lot of ballparks uh, of Ebbetsfield's vintage, where when that opened in 1914, it was a, a cab ride to left field and to uh, to center field, where, and Darius can check me on this, but I, I think it was uh, about 410 down the left field line and uh, drifting out to roughly 510 in center field. And over the years, they kind of cut away at that. Oh, and, th- and there was a, a flagpole in center field, Astros fans. But um, in play, I mean. But, you know, they, they gradually shrunk it down to the point that it was a favorable park, I think, for everyone. Uh, it was short down the right field line also, even shorter down the right field line. And it wound up, by the time we're talking about, being about 340. But, but what I'm confused about 
is when the Dodgers first move, they don't go right to Chavez Ravine. They, they go to the LA Coliseum. And that, if you haven't seen it, is one of the strangest ballpark alignments uh, that you'll ever see because it's a, it's a football field. It's a track and field uh, stadium. It's oval shaped. And so the way that they wedged a baseball diamond in there was to make it about six miles to right field, which pretty much ends Duke Snyder's career right there. And they made it, I, I don't remember the exact number, but well under 300 feet to left field. And, and their solution uh, in the short term was to kind of hang a shower curtain there and, you know, make guys pop it over that, that shower curtain. But you'd think that whatever prejudice they had against left-handed pitching in the old park would have gone double for the LA Coliseum. Yeah, that was certainly something I think uh, it may have been more related to the players than than the part the the actual effect of them becoming less uh, successful against left-handed pitching but i certainly wondered and it was difficult to find anybody actually making any comments about it but uh, i wondered whether just the sort of you know the psychological effect of oh they're out of ebbets field now and maybe a lot of managers didn't even bother to initially think well this park is just as bad and i wondered how much because there does seem to be visibly a, a, an immediate effect but it does coincide with the sort of the retirement or at least the decline of a lot of the, the players they were worried about in the same period. So it's kind of difficult to, to tease those two things out and, and separate them from each other. And Darius, do you know if there were any other prominent starters who got the spawn treatment against the Dodgers during that time? I mean, obviously, when they were down to facing six lefty starters in a full season, there must have been other teams using this same sort of pattern. Yeah, well, I mentioned Johnny Antonelli in, in the article, and he was the one starter who uh, his, his manager, uh, Leo Dirichia, um really seemed to sort of maintain some kind of faith in. And he started 12 times against the, the Dodgers over that same four-year period where Spahn only had one. But even so, that would, was still kind of a little bit less than you would expect. Uh, probably 19 or 20 would have been a number of starts you would expect sort of on, on average uh, if he'd just sort of been regularly used mm -hmm. basically yeah every other left-handed starter in the national league saw a significant reduction uh Spahn was by far and away the best and, and antonelli was the second by war in that period mm -hmm. but harvey haddix um i think was was third and, and he got six and then after that there weren't really a lot of sort of very prominent starters i think it went down below sort of 20 war pretty quickly for that that decade so there weren't a, a huge number of guys where you saw that i saw the names and thought oh wow can't believe this guy didn't start but there were a lot of teams sort of number one lefties who basically was just not used against the dodgers for three four five years in in the period mm -hmm. and you look back through some primary sources and you found a couple allusions to this but it, it wasn't like front page news, like Braves aren't starting Warren Spahn and there there didn't seem to be any public sign of discontent on his part. It, it wasn't, you know, I want to pitch. Why are you taking the ball away from me? It was, there didn't seem to be, from what you could tell, any great conflict of egos over this? No, I had quite a good search, you know, sort of looking for, for comments about games between the two teams and, you know, trying to find if there were comments from the players or the, or the managers saying, you know, oh, I'm disappointed that I wasn't used or, you know, we couldn't use Warren in this game or, or anything like that. And there just really wasn't anything at all. So it, it does seem sort of like that everybody, you know, players and, and managers and uh the newspaper writers as well kind of accepted this as a, a strategy that didn't really need to be questioned. So yeah, I, f I found that quite strange and it was only sort of a couple, you know, the one article, uh, 
that was basically based on on Roth's statistics uh, was was one that sort of brought out the comment about it in the first place. And then there was one that was specifically about the platoon split in which the Dodgers actually said that they preferred facing right-handed pitching, even though they, as you mentioned, were possibly the greatest team ever against left-handers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very difficult to find any, any comments. I kind of thought, you know, Spahn being as good as he was, that there would be more made of this. But as far as I could tell, that there really wasn't. Does that surprise you, Steve? I mean, was that common at this time in the sort of reserve clause era when players were making more or less what managers were making? Was it less common for them to protest? It's, it's really it's hard to imagine this happening today for many reasons, but that's just one of the reasons. Just, you know, imagining, I don't know, Chris Sale or whoever the the Spahn or equivalent or Kershaw or whoever it is, having a manager tell him, we don't want you to face this team seems like something that a modern player would find very hard to swallow. Oh yeah. I think, I think it, it would be harder. Uh, and guys did certainly kick back then when they had a, a problem with their manager or they had a problem with their general manager and whether they, they uh, went to the newspapers or, or they demanded a trade, those, those things did, did happen all, all the time. And I, it, maybe it didn't get out to the newspapers uh, as much because, you know, writers were a lot more discreet in those days in terms of disclosing conflict. I, I mean, there are some, some notable examples. And there's, there's one actually very famous example with, in the Brooklyn Dodgers where the entire team basically quit on Leo DeRocher in 1943 and they nearly had to forfeit a game because you couldn't get anybody to put their uniforms on. Um, but in that case, the, what precipitated the strike uh, if we can call it a strike, it actually involved comments DeRocher made to the press and then denied, and the writers were part of it. So they, they couldn't very well ignore it or, or hide it. But I mean, remember, this is a period where if you look at, say, managers like, say, Joe McCarthy of the Yankees, where you'll see things in the paper like he wasn't at today's game, the coaches ran it because he was sick. He wasn't sick. He was in his hotel room. He had a, a bottle of scotch, and he just... <laughs> And this is a weird thing because Joe McCarthy lived to be like 100 once, you know, once he he quit. So for a guy who was as unhealthy as he was, it, it's it's very odd. But these were just things that they didn't write about. Whereas you know, flash forward 25 years from there, and you know, Billy Martin's every appearance at a strip club is publicized. So you know, I don't I don't think it was unheard of. And Warren Spahn was kind of an outspoken and occasionally obnoxious guy. So if he had an issue, I'm sure that that he said something. But again, there was there was a certain amount of par for the course uh, in those days with with pitchers be, being skipped. You know, one thing that I'm really curious about, Darius, is whether you also looked or anybody at that time looked at the left-handed pitchers who were starting for the Dodgers because they had them uh, going into this period. Preacher Rowe was incredibly successful for them, and I think he was kind of a soft-tossing guy. Certainly didn't have the abilities of, of Warren Spahn, but did very well for them for several years. And, and I don't know, was the ballpark an impediment to guys who the Dodgers actually used on a regular basis? Uh, I didn't get too in-depth into that. I did have a quick look, and it, it didn't seem like they particularly shied away from it. I think they had a few guys as well in, in the rotation who were a good left-handers. Uh, during that time so it would have been difficult for them i think regularly um but it, it didn't seem like there was a, a huge effect from my my initial glances that um something i might look into in a bit more depth um but yeah it certainly doesn't seem to be something that you know that they took the same approach to to other teams um it is clear that the dodgers were you know by far and away the best offense of the time as well so i don't know if that was just so much of a you know 
a factor they obviously didn't have to face themselves uh, and I think it yeah from from both sides of the plate it wasn't just against left-handers but um I think uh, it was kind of the extremity of their you know how right-handed their offense was and you know how many home runs they they were hitting uh, as much as it was the ballpark mm-hmm. And Steve, how did the flexible rotation work? How would that be communicated to the players? And was there any fallout from it? I mean, it's really hard for someone who grew up watching the game during the 80s or 90s or 2000s to imagine this sort of thing since the rotation has become so rigid and players protest when, you know, if you try to go to a six-man rotation like the Mets did briefly last summer, it just doesn't work. Players like being on their schedules. Is that just something that they've been conditioned to do, but you think with the right person or the right movement, you could get back to that point? And And is there a purpose to it? I mean, if you're sitting Warren Spahn, maybe that's taking it too far. But if you're using Whitey Ford against your main rival or something instead of against the last place team... Maybe there is some advantage to that. Ben, you know, you know, uh, from personal experience, um, having gone through some of this stuff with with um, what I guess we can call the baseball establishment, just how resistant players can be, even if something is learned and not necessarily, for want of a better term, God given. I mean, there, you know, there's there's no um, biblical commandment that says, you know, thou must start thy pitchers every, uh, fourth day or every third day there there's, this is just the way that it's happened and the way everybody's been told, um, that it should be. And what's interesting is it's very sensible in, in a certain way. Like you said, you don't necessarily bench Warren spawn against any lineup because you, you know, you assume he'll, he's good enough that, that he'll figure it out. Uh, or that, you know, more times than than with a replacement level guy, you're certainly going to get a good outing. But for somebody less than that, if you have a track record of the guy having a bad record against a particular team, it, it would make sense. And it, this is a, a really miniature version of this. But I remember during Earl Weaver's last go around with the Orioles, his uh, ill-fated comeback in uh, 1986, their closer was Don Asse. And then as now, your closer was your closer and you used him in those situations. Now, the inning might have varied back then. It wasn't as rigid as it is now. But still, that was the guy you went to in the ninth inning. Uh, Don Mattingly hit Asse spectacularly well. Um, this is now. This is all anecdotal. So if you if you go to Baseball Reference, maybe you'll you'll find out that uh, that that I'm I'm misremembering. But I I believe he hit him very well. And after a couple of game winning hits in a row, Earl Weaver said, "Asse will never pitch to Don Mattingly again. Not even to intentionally walk him. He just that he as far as he was the closer in 99.9 percent of all situations, but not." against that guy. Similarly, in that same period, uh, Todd Worrell, who's the closer for the Cardinals, Howard Johnson killed him. And um, Whitey Herzog's response was to question whether Howard Johnson was corking his bats uh, and keep pitching Todd Worrell. And they kept getting the same result, which was game-winning home runs for Howard Johnson. So you can see that that Weaver's uh, idea, and these are both great managers, but, but Weaver's idea not to react with stubbornness and alter the role just slightly is more sensible than just sticking to this to this rigid idea and again somebody not Clayton Kershaw not Chris Sale but some some sort of middle of the road lefty who's you know heading into Fenway Park against say their classic 1980s lineup where you had Dwight Evans and Jim Rice and so on and you're just going to give them a chance to knock balls off the wall why wouldn't you skip that guy the the one problem is I think that 
the schedule is less amenable to it now. And back then when you had more train travel, less air travel, more days off in the schedule, more double headers, you had a need to either work in extra pitchers or skip pitchers at times. And today the schedule is so packed with so few off days and practically no double headers at all that messing with your starting rotation introduces a level of complication that I don't think existed then. Uh And there's also the injury consideration. I mean, if you went, you know, if you started a guy on three days rest and then started him on seven days rest or something, I, I think a lot of people would consider that irresponsible or dangerous and maybe maybe it was. I mean, you know, the fact that guys did that regularly at one time, they also blew out their arms regularly at that time. Or maybe it's just that they were conditioned to do that and today's pitchers are not conditioned to do that. But that is a, another major hurdle that you would have to clear if you were going to do this. But But that would be common at that time that you could just go, you know, a week or just start on short rest and then start on eight days rest or something. I mean, that was common would would players know to anticipate that like uh, i'm i'm not going to pitch any game against team x this year and i can plan ahead for that or would it just be kind of an on the fly thing uh, a little of both and and as i said you might come to the ballpark and look under your cap in your locker and there'd be a ball and it's oh i'm starting today and <laughs> i think that for a guy who was an ace again we we're talking about warren spawn is kind of a notable exception to this I think for, for the guy who was an ace, you wanted him starting 35 or in a, in a four-man rotation those, those days 40 times a year, so they weren't skipped. They, they kind of knew what was going to happen. You know, Carl Hubble, you know, just to pick a, a, another left-hander, a great left-hander at, at random from the 1930s, I think he knew every, every three or every four days, that depending on what kind of rotation they had, that he was going to start um, no matter who the, the opponent was. But everybody else... It was more flexible. And and again, remember that our concept of the bullpen as, you know, a, a role, a living, a, a, a place where guys go and they never come out of there to do other things, that's a, a more recent innovation. And pretty much if you were not officially in the starting rotation and, and were in the bullpen, you weren't you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a reliever. You were just a utility pitcher. And that might mean that you were a Sunday pitcher. Um, Ted Lyons had one of the great seasons of all time uh, towards the end of his career, making about 20 starts, just pitching the back ends of double headers every single week and uh, was almost invincible in that role, uh, even though uh, he had, you know, probably less stuff than you and I do at this point, um, it, which, which is saying a lot. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's an evolution of both guys, the way people see themselves. I think if you were in the bullpen, you wanted to get out of it. For the most part, you wanted to be back in the rotation. So you certainly didn't balk if somebody stuck the ball under your cap and, and you were going to get a start. And again, given the slack in the schedule, I think the reverse is is often true for guys below the ace level. And Darius, I'll let you get the last word. What was your takeaway from this research? Did you did you think, wow, teams sure were misguided. <laughs> they benched <laughs> Warren Spahn. Or did you think teams were creative and smart and willing to try interesting things that maybe teams in 2016 could learn something from? Uh, in, in some ways, I was surprised that they were sort of creative in the sense that they were paying that much attention to the platoon split, because when I first found out about it, I, I'd never really thought, you know, I've read a few books from, from that time, uh, Boys of Summer and things like that. And so it never really come up that much. You know, I never felt like there was that much talk about it. And so to see the extremity to which it was taken made me think, oh, this is kind of, uh, you know, initially I was kind of uh, thinking it was quite creative. Um, but 
at the same time, when you are talking about Warren Spahn, it, it does seem a, a little bit misguided because I think, you know, there's that effect. Maybe Warren Spahn isn't as good as Warren Spahn is against the other teams in the National League, but he's still better than most other pitchers would be in that matchup. Uh, and I looked up some guys, uh, you know, some, some right-handers who were great at the time, like Robin Roberts, and he got absolutely lit up. I think over the same period, he had like a 460 ERA against the Dodgers or something. And, you know, it wasn't like these right-handers were going out and, and having a great time against them. Um, you know, the Dodgers were, were still beating up on them as well. So, yeah, it was kind of uh, an interesting it was definitely learned something, you know, about uh, how teams manage their players. And like you you were both saying about the, the day's rest, that was really kind of a, an eye-opener sort of illustrative when I was going through the game logs and uh, the baseball reference pages and just looking and you just see names jumping about all over the place. And, you know, one guy's starting, you know, on two days rest and then he's back in the bullpen and then he's back in the rotation four days later. And it kind of uh, really brought to the forefront, like uh, how different it is to, to how rotations are managed today. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't think, you know, it, it's not, I didn't come away from it thinking necessarily it was wholly practical. Uh, I do think there are the odd, odd situation and the one that you obviously mentioned with that Craig Goldstein brought up was Wei Yin Chen right. uh, getting skipped against the Jays last year but uh, that was one occasion and, and he did react quite badly to it. Yeah, yeah. as Sam and I discussed, right, the, the Orioles seemed to sort of try to do this with left-hander Wei Yin Chen. They had a start coming up against the Blue Jays and they demoted him citing general soreness which would have the added advantage of not having to face the Blue Jays who were essentially the the 1950s Dodgers of last season. And Chen was upset and he tweeted about how he felt great. And then his agent, Scott Boris, chimed in and said it was grossly irregular. I've never seen anything like this in my 30 years of doing this. But if he had been doing this for 60 or 70 years, I guess he would have been very familiar with this with this sort of thing. So I suppose you, there wasn't Scott Boris or Twitter uh, when Warren Spahn was pitching. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, thank you for doing this research, Darius. Again, you can follow Darius on Twitter at DariusA64, and you can find his writing at BanishToThePen.com. Thank you, Darius. Thank you. And Steve is on Twitter at GoStevenGoldman. You can read him on baseball history at Vice Sports. And it's not a coincidence that he has name dropped Casey Stengel a couple times during this podcast. He has also written the book on Casey Stengel and it's a great biography. It's called Forging Genius. So I'd encourage people to read that as well. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. It's wonderful to uh, to be appearing again on Baseball Prospectus years after I dropped Ray Davies playing Thank You for the Days and, and <laughs> drifted along the uh, the Lonesome Trail. So it's 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 uh, neat and particularly great to be back with you, who um, not only followed me but taught me so much uh, even long before that, going back to uh, when you were in college and I was still just as old as I am now. <laughs> yes. Well, I could say the same. It's been nice. Thank you. And this is it for us this week. You can send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review the show on iTunes. Please support our sponsor, the Play Index at Baseball Reference. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a nice weekend. We'll be back on Monday. But I don't ever want to go back.